This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me on today's program is a gentleman that is a prolific commentator on uh, what's going on in the economy, what's going on in the financial markets. Uh, His name is Peter Schiff. I'm sure that uh, you'll recognize him as a returning guest. So I was able to catch up with Peter here this past week and uh, get his views on where we're headed. I know you're going to enjoy my conversation with him. Also, uh, this is the last opportunity for you to get our January special report titled, Will the recently passed COVID relief package negatively affect your retirement? If you'd like to get a copy of that report, and we're getting terrific feedback on it, just go to requestyourreport.com. We'd be glad to send you a copy. Uh, Requestyourreport.com is the website. Just let us know where to mail that, and we would be glad to do that. Also, if you do not go to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates website, I would encourage you to do that. We've got replays of our client webinar uh, on that website that are available for you to watch at any time. Uh, You can also get our weekly newsletter, Portfolio Watch, uh, which, again, I would encourage you to do. I have a question for you today. My question is, have you ever heard of a crack-up boom? Crack-up boom. Have you ever heard of that? Well, you might want to get familiar with the term and what it means because you may be about to experience it. Now, I talked about this topic in detail on the client webinar last Monday. And again, you can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com to watch the webinar. And I should state at the outset of this segment that I am biased on this topic. Some might even say I'm extremely biased and they could perhaps be right. Now, I'm biased in the sense that I am firmly against Keynesian economic policies, and these economic policies are currently dominating U.S. economic and monetary policy more than ever before in the past. Now, that's a pretty big statement, and I'll explain, but that's a pretty big statement given the massive quantities of money that the Federal Reserve has simply manufactured from thin air over the past few years. Now, let's dig into that term, Keynesian economics. Keynesian economics is an economic theory advanced by John Maynard Keynes. Now, Mr. Keynes advanced the idea that when an economy slows down, when private sector spending wanes, then it's the government's responsibility to step in and spend to make up for the lack of spending in the private sector. In other words, the government's job is to take up the slack. Now, Keynes also pointed out that this government spending needs to be reined in when the economy is improving, and that's something that over the past 50 years or so, U.S. politicians and policymakers have ignored. Now, I believe that eventually these policies don't work. Even though they may create what seems to be prosperity in the short term, in the long term, they simply do not work. And Keynes himself had the same opinion. 
Now, you can't make this stuff up. Keynes, by suggesting that the government step in and spend to make up for lack of spending in the private sector, he knew that that would eventually fail. In 1923... Mr. Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, authored a, I'll call it, a tract. And he wrote this piece for distribution, and in the piece he wrote about monetary reform. Now, this is a quote from Mr. Keynes' piece. Quote, Long run is a misleading guide to current affairs. In the long run, we are all dead. Shocking, isn't it? Now, Janet Yellen, who is now the Treasury Secretary and former chair of the Federal Reserve, that makes her an experienced money printer, she had this to say in her Senate confirmation hearing last week. And I quote, But right now, with interest rates at historic lows, the smartest thing we can do is act big. In the long run, I believe the benefits will far outweigh the costs, especially if we care about helping people who have been struggling for a very long time. Now, certainly no one would argue with the idea that we should help people who are struggling. But I find it interesting that Ms. Yellen said, with interest rates at historic lows, the smartest thing we can do is act now. In the long run, I believe the benefits will far outweigh the costs. Now, What does that mean? Well, you don't have to be an economist to understand that Ms. Yellen is proposing more Keynesian solutions. What does that mean? More stimulus funded by more money created out of thin air. I find it ironic that Keynes, in the piece he wrote in 1923, said, long run is a misleading guide to current affairs. In the long run, we are all dead. And Janet Yellen, who is a Keynesian economist, says that in the long run, I believe benefits will far outweigh the costs. Well, one of them is wrong. One of them will end up being right, and I believe Mr. Keynes will end up being right. And I think one only needs to take a look at another approach to economics the Austrian view, to which I would subscribe more closely, and look at what an economist by the name of Ludwig von Mises had to say. Now, Mr. von Mises warned of the ultimate outcome of these, what I believe are reckless policies. He said this, credit expansion can bring about a temporary boom. But such a fictitious prosperity must end in a general depression of trade, a slump. Now, credit expansion, what does that mean? Well, today, money is created by expanding credit. Credit expansion in this context simply means money creation. So let me restate Mr. von Mises' quote using that term. I'm going to substitute money creation where he said credit expansion. Money creation can bring about a temporary boom, but such a fictitious prosperity must end in a general depression of trade, 
a slump. Now, what's been going on is we've had credit expansion followed by additional credit expansion. We've had money creation followed by additional money creation. But a question has to come up if you're thinking about this rationally. And the question is, does the debt ever have to be repaid? I mean, every time you expand credit, more money is created, but money is debt, as we've talked about on this program in the past. So can you just continue this cycle and stave off this economic slump or this economic depression forever? Well, Mr. Keynes knew the answer to this question. He stated in 1923 that in the long run, we are all dead. Well, Mr. Keynes, and this is purely speculation on my part, but I believe he knew that he was mortgaging the future with his policies, but he calculated the fallout was a long way down the proverbial road. Now, von Mises tells us what will happen. He said if the credit expansion or money creation is not stopped in time, the boom turns into the crack-up boom. The flight into real values begins, and the whole monetary system founders. Now, in the last segment of today's program, I am going to talk more about what a crack-up boom is and how, should it occur, you will be affected. And I'll also talk to you about some strategies that you might think about incorporating into your own individual personal financial situation to protect yourself from this if we listen, listen to Mr. Von Mises and we listen to Mr. Keynes, this crack up, boom. Now, if you're just joining me, let me remind you that today is the last day to request your copy of our January special report titled, Will the Recently Passed COVID Relief Package Negatively Affect Your Retirement? You can get a copy of that report by visiting the website requestyourreport.com. Uh, and I'd also encourage you to visit the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates website. There are a number of resources there. Uh, that we make available for free. Again, the website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. I'll be back after these words with my guest, Peter Schiff. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is returning guest, Peter Schiff. Uh, Peter is the founder and president of Euro-Pacific Capital, as well as Schiff Gold. Uh, I'd encourage you to check out his website at schiffradio.com. Uh, he is a prolific author and commentator. And uh, Peter, welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks for having me back on. Well, Peter, let's just jump in uh, after a crazy 2020 in which we saw uh, lockdowns significantly affect the economy. How would you rate the health of the U.S. economy as we speak today? Well, it's extremely sick. I, I would say terminal if I were a doctor evaluating it from a medical perspective. Uh, so let me ask you um, how Fed policy, I think... Uh, Roughly speaking, $3 trillion was, was created out of thin air last year. Um, is that uh, going to solve the problem? 
Well, actually, they created more than that. But no, I mean, it's not going to solve the problem. It is the problem. That is the reason the economy is so sick is because we've been given a toxic dose of monetary stimulus. I mean, that is the problem. And it's all this money creation that is not only the reason the economy is so sick, but it's why government is so big, why uh, there's so much debt, why we haven't been able to restructure the economy uh, in a viable way that would lead to sustained, viable economic growth for, for everybody. Uh, instead, we've temporarily enriched the few at the expense of the many by inflating asset bubbles and undermining legitimate economic growth. So, Peter, moving ahead, um, how do you see Fed policy evolving, if at all? Well, I don't see it evolving. I mean, that's the problem. They don't learn from their mistakes. So there is no evolution there. They just repeat the same failed policies over and over again. Now, what's going to put an end to it is going to be a dollar crisis. So that's going to end the party is when the money that they're printing loses all of its purchasing power or most of its purchasing power, in which case the party's over because, you know, what good is money that doesn't buy anything? And unfortunately, that's where we're headed. Well, and Peter, I think I read an article that for the seventh consecutive month, uh, food price inflation was up uh, significantly in like vegetable oils and, and dairy. And of course, they blame uh, palm oil shortages and, and everything, but the, the, the real reason, which is, is money creation, um, what, what is your price inflation forecast given the current policy? Yeah, well, first of all, you don't want to fall into the government's you know, game of labeling you know, commodities going up as you know, agriculture inflation or something like that. Um, there's only one type of inflation, and that's money supply growth. So all inflation comes from the Fed. That is the source of it. Now, as inflation works its way through the economy, because inflation debases the purchasing power of the money that's there, that's how it works, right? You create more money, and so each monetary unit now has less value, and so prices have to go up to clear the market. And so the result of inflation is that prices go up. And so that's why uh, food prices are going up, and that's why you know, a lot of prices are going up. Now, other things can impact prices because supply and demand also is a factor. So more money just increases demand, right? Because people have more money to buy stuff. But another factor is supply. And the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and all the lockdowns is actually putting a, a climp on, on supply because fewer people are working and producing. So we have more money to buy stuff but not as many people working to produce stuff. So uh, prices are just going to take off across the board. You know, in the past, uh, Peter, I've interviewed uh, John Williams of Shadow Stats and uh, Ed Batowski at the Chapwood Index. Um, and they would both, depending on the part of the country you, you live in, they would both say that the, the actual true inflation rate is somewhere between maybe 9 and 13%, uh, depending on, again, what part of the country you live in. W would you say that's an accurate number, or what would your take be? Yeah, it probably is accurate uh, to a degree. And also, because you have to realize that if you really want to measure the effect that inflation has on prices, I think you have to not just look at how much prices go up, but how much prices would have gone down absent that inflation. So if prices should have gone down by 4%, 
due to increased uh, efficiency and greater productivity and economies of scale, or maybe even due to a decline in demand due to a weak economy, right? If prices should have gone down by 4%, but instead they go up by 6% because of all the money printing, of all the inflation, then yeah, that's a 10% rate of inflation because your cost of living is 10% higher than it otherwise would have been absent the government inflation. So again, you just can't look at how much prices went up. It's the net if effect that inflation had on prices. And if it turned a 4% drop into a 6% rise, that's 10%. And you don't want to you know, believe the government propaganda, and this is pure propaganda, that somehow a decline in prices is a bad thing. Like it's so dangerous, the government has to save us from it by creating inflation. Prices going down is a good thing. Everybody wants their cost of living to go down. Nobody wants to have to pay more for stuff. Everybody wants to pay less for stuff. When you can buy stuff for cheaper, you have more you could buy more stuff. You have a higher standard of living. So only in this, you know, the bizarro world of government is a rising cost of living a good thing and a falling cost of living a bad thing. So Peter, what policy uh, is there, if any, that uh, could be pursued at this point by policymakers, perhaps at the Fed, that would uh, reverse this course? What, what is the proper policy moving ahead in your view? Well, the pro- proper policy really involves detox, right? We've been living in this phony bubble economy that's been kept alive by this monetary heroin coming from the Fed. Now, you know, to get off that monetary heroin, just like to get off real life heroin, it's not easy, you know, you, you know because you have withdrawal. You know, you, ha- you know it's not a, a, a fun time going into detox and, and, and returning to a normal life and, you know, where you're not high on, on drugs. So in order to detox from monetary heroin, there's going to be a deep recession. I mean, that's just unavoidable, deeper than what we've experienced before. Asset prices are going to come down, stock prices, real estate prices. Investors are going to lose money, and um, businesses are going to fail and go bankrupt, and that means lenders are going to lose money. And so there's going to be big losses. And then, of course, the U.S. government is going to have to live within its means. It's going to have to start cutting spending across the board and you know, including for entitlement. So, you know, a lot of sacred cows are going to have to get gored. A lot of promises are going to have to be broken. Uh, But that's dealing with reality. Uh, And and so we can bite the bullet, take the pain, and then move forward and and, and benefit, you know, from the short-term pain with some real long-term gain. Instead, what we keep doing is opting for more heroin uh, so we don't have to deal with the pain of facing reality. But in the process, we make all the problems much, much worse. And so uh, instead of uh, detoxing and quitting the habit, we end up dying of an overdose, which is where we have hyperinflation and we destroy the dollar. And that's unfortunately uh, where we may be headed. So, Peter, when you study past uh, hyperinflation, uh, Weimar, Germany, uh, you know, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, um, there always seems to be a tipping point that is reached when the, the average person, the average citizen says, wait a minute, I don't want to hold any of these paper receipts. I need to have canned goods, gold, silver. I need tangible stuff. Do you see that we're going to reach that tipping point here at some point in the near future? Well, we obviously will reach it. Um, how near in the future is hard to say. 
you know, whether it's months away or years away, I don't think it's decades away, right? So it's not like way off into the distant future. But we have already long since passed where that point would have been absent the U.S. dollar's role as the reserve currency of the world. So we've been able to export our inflation all around the world, and we've been able to live with huge trade deficits. And so this has really enabled us to go much deeper into debt and to print a lot more money and to build a far more unsustainable economy than we could have done in a vacuum. Right. If we if we did not have the ability to export the inflation and we can only consume what we produced ourselves, we would have already had a, a complete implosion. But because the world has offered us this massive subsidy, right, they've given us all this rope uh, and we've used it you know, to fashion a very long noose. Uh, so at some point, you know, we're going to feel that noose. But, you know, I think it's already taken longer than I would have expected, you know, a decade ago. So we're literally living on borrowed time. But, you know, we can we can face the music almost any day. Peter, uh, time for one more question in this segment. Uh, you mentioned the dollar's role as a world reserve currency. Um, are you seeing that there is another currency or monetary system that might emerge that would displace the dollar's role as the world reserve currency? Well, I mean, sure. I mean, the dollar wasn't always the reserve currency. In fact, there really wasn't a reserve currency before the dollar. There really was just gold. I mean, gold was money. And the initial reason that the dollar was accepted as the reserve currency is because it was redeemable in gold. It was not only backed by gold, but if you had dollars, you can present them to the Federal Reserve and get a specific quantity of gold on demand. So that's why the dollar was a reserve currency. Before it was the dollar, it was the pound, but the pound was also uh, a, a receipt for, for metal. And so uh, the world had always been on a gold standard up until really 1971. That's when we went off the gold standard globally onto the dollar standard, which is a fiat standard. And I think that when this system blows up, the most logical um, you know, move would be to revert to what worked prior to the dollar, to go back to what the world had been using for centuries, and that is a remonetization of gold. And so that's where we're headed. So I don't think that there's just going to be another fiat currency that's going to emerge as the new reserve, where the world's just going to say, okay, the dollar's worthless, we'll, we'll take euros, you know, or, you know, we'll take Japanese yen or even Chinese RB. I mean, it's just a piece of paper. If the dollar could collapse, so could any piece of paper. So what's going to be needed to have the type of confidence necessary to act as a reserve is gold. You need to have something that's reliable, something that has actual intrinsic value. So it's, you know, the supply is, is, is limited. You just can't, you know, print an infinite amount of money. I mean, there's no limit to how many dollars the Fed can create out of thin air. And there's, there's no limit to how many zeros, you know, they can put after the one. Uh, so, uh, you know, and that would be the case of any other fiat currency, but that's not the case when you, when you have real currency, which is currency backed by money. You know, when you have real money, there's self-imposed constraint. There's a discipline placed on, uh, on the banks and the politicians. And that's what, what, what we're going to need. 
Well, my guest today is Mr. Peter Schiff. I would encourage you to check out his uh, radio program at SchiffRadio.com. Uh, he is also the founder and president of Euro-Pacific Capital and Schiff Gold. I'll continue my conversation with Peter when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm chatting today with the founder and president of Euro-Pacific Capital as well as Schiff Gold, Mr. Peter Schiff. I would encourage you to check out his uh, radio program also at SchiffRadio.com. That's S-C-H-I-F-F Radio.com. And Peter, in the last segment, uh, you talked about the fact that at some point in your view, uh, we're going to have to return to what we always return to historically when currencies fail, and that is the gold standard what is your take on cryptocurrencies? I mean, Bitcoin, what, a dozen years ago wasn't even worth a penny, and now it's been over 40000 Do you see <laughs> any any future for cryptocurrencies? I mean, to me, it makes no sense. Yeah, well, the, the intrinsic value is no different today at you know 30000 a Bitcoin than it was at $0.03 cents a Bitcoin or whatever. I mean, it's it's still just a digital token that has no real value. In fact, a Bitcoin is really just an arbitrary uh, bundle of Satoshis, right? One Bitcoin is 100 million Satoshis. So that's really what you're buying is you're buying Satoshis. And there's 2.1 quadrillion Satoshis, you know, out there in, in total when they finish mining them, you know, in quotes all. So, I mean, the idea that they're scarce is kind of nonsense, you know, because, you know, it's a huge number. But also, there's nothing unique about them. I mean, all the other cryptocurrencies, there's thousands and thousands of other cryptocurrencies that really are not any different than Bitcoin, other than they have a different name. But, you know, they're just a string of numbers. Um, and you can't do anything with it. Like gold, gold is money because it's a valuable commodity, but it's also easily stored and exchanged and it doesn't decay. So if you're worried about inflation, um, you, it's hard to store wheat, you know, plus it might go bad. You know, it's hard to store oil. You need a lot of space. But if you store gold, you can always use your gold to buy oil or to buy wheat in the future. There's a historical relationship between those commodities. Uh, and there's always going to be demand for gold because jewelers are going to need gold. Uh, computer chip manufacturers are going to need gold. Uh, companies that are in the aerospace and in dentistry. I mean, there's a real demand for gold. And there are new uses for gold uh, being discovered all the time. I mean, gold is the most valuable uh, metal in the world uh, for good reason. So you have something real. Uh, Bitcoin is nothing. I mean, you can't do anything with a Bitcoin except speculate on it. So it doesn't have any value. So it can't be a store of value. Now, that doesn't mean the price can't go up. The price of anything can go up as long as there's somebody willing to buy it. But why is there somebody willing to buy Bitcoin? Well, somebody is willing to buy it because they think they can sell it to somebody else who is willing to buy it. And why is that other person willing to buy it? Because he thinks somebody else will buy it from him at an even higher price. So it all boils down to the greater fool. That's all it is. It's just a pyramid or a Ponzi. And eventually it has to collapse because there is no fundamental buyer for Bitcoin absent the speculator. And there's no telling how long the speculative frenzy is going to go on. 
I mean, you know, how long did it go on with the tulips in Holland, you know, 500 years ago? I mean, eventually it ends. I mean, look at the phenomenon we had recently with Beanie Babies. I mean, although at least the Beanie Baby had some fundamental value. I mean, you, you know, they're kind of cute. You could snuggle up with them or something. Uh, but, you know, for a while, people began thinking that they were investments, which, of course, they're not. They're just little stuffed animals. Um, but, you know, for a while, they kept going up in price and, you know, there was a frenzy around them. But eventually it dies out. And, you know, the same thing is going to happen with, with Bitcoin. I mean, it's just, you know, there's no telling how big. I mean, Bitcoin has a good story behind it. It's got a sexy story, but, you know, it's all sizzle. It's no stake. And, you know, I, I, I've heard a lot of dumb things said by people over the years in bubbles, but the dumbest stuff I've ever heard was during the Bitcoin bubble. I mean, the, the things that people say about Bitcoin – you know, it's so ridiculous. And then the things they say about gold are even more ridiculous. Uh, but as long as the price is going up, the people that bought it think they're geniuses. And they all, but the only reason it's gone up is because other people have been just as dumb and they bought it. Uh, but eventually all the geniuses will be exposed for the fools that they really are. You know, and uh, I'll have the last laugh. So, Peter, you mentioned uh, moving back to a gold standard, and, and I happen to think that when you study history, that, that's the only thing that can happen as well. How might you envision that could occur? It seems to me that there will be a lot of, uh, a lot of resistance to that, uh, particularly by you know, countries that have central banks that are printing massive amounts of money could lead to some geopolitical tensions. How do you see this maybe transitioning? Well, first of all, you know that all central banks already hold gold on their balance sheets. Uh, it's banks have it. It's a tier one asset. Uh, there's no haircut required on gold. It, you know, the banking system looks at gold uh, the same way it looks at dollars, euros, yen. So it's already there. It's already part of the banking system. Uh, and so what's going to happen is that gold price will just rise uh, substantially to the point where gold will be a much larger percentage of banking reserves and especially central banks than it is today and other central banks that just don't have enough gold will go into the market and buy gold and, and also help to drive the price higher in the process uh, but you know that's what's going to happen i mean the biggest change will be in the united states because let's say you're uh, a country a smaller country that has u.s dollar reserves how did you get those dollars you because you can't print them so other countries had to earn their dollar reserves. They had to export. They had to have trade surpluses, and they had to accumulate dollars. And so the accumulation of those dollars required actual effort, you know, actual productivity. Well, so there would be no chains when they have to accumulate gold reserves because, you know, it would be the same thing. Effort would be required for, you know, let's say South Korea – if South Korea wants to increase its gold reserves, it has to earn the gold. It has to, you know, produce products and have surpluses and 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 and, and get the gold. So for that country, it really doesn't matter whether they're storing gold or storing dollars, because either way, they have to work to acquire them. Except when they're acquiring gold, they've at least got something real. When they're acquiring dollars, they just got our worthless IOUs. The biggest change is for the United States because now we have to work for stuff. We just can't print gold the way we print dollars. So if we want to have gold reserves backing up the dollar, and of course we already have some, uh, we just don't have enough given how many dollars are out there. And of course, you know, it remains to be seen, you know, how much gold is actually still left in Fort Knox. I mean, I, you know, we claim that we have a certain amount, but I'm not even sure when the last audit was performed. 
but my guess is that, you know, we don't have enough gold either. But to the extent that we need new gold, more gold, we have to earn it. We can't print it. I'm chatting today with Mr. Peter Schiff. His website is SchiffRadio.com. I'd encourage you to check it out. Uh, Peter, you know, there's uh, uh, this debate between owning gold and owning silver, and a lot of analysts point to the gold-silver ratio. Uh, Do you have a favorite? Yeah, well, obviously, you know, as I said earlier, um, there are historic relationships between gold and other commodities, right? That's why, you know, gold is a good inflation hedge, because over longer periods of time, those relationships tend to, you know, revert to the mean, right? And so you have some idea of, uh, you know, whether gold is cheap or expensive, and but you can use it as a store of value. Uh, so if you look at the historic price relationship between gold and silver, silver is very cheap right now relative to gold. You can buy a lot of silver, right? Many, many ounces of silver for one ounce of gold, a lot more than the historic average, so if you believe that prices tend to revert to the mean over time, then at some point you would expect uh, silver prices to be much higher relative to gold. So I think that there is probably more long-term bang for your buck in silver. I think that you could probably see a gain in silver relative to gold over time uh, as both metals gain against the U.S. dollar. To what extent, Peter, do you believe that the uh – Gold price and silver price is being manipulated or rigged. We had, uh, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase recently in the news and paid some significant penalties for rigging the price. Uh, do, do you think that's still going on, and that's why maybe gold and silver prices haven't gone higher? Well, you know, I don't think there's like an organized conspiracy to rig it. I think some of these players may be acting in their own self-interest, and some of their actions may work to slow the increase in the price of gold. You know, so maybe the price of gold could be much higher, but for some of these activities. But look, the price of gold has been steadily rising. Uh, it started this uh, century, right, in 2000. Uh, it was under 300, and it's moved above 2000. So if they're trying to suppress the price of gold, they're obviously not succeeding. <laughs> now, it's possible that without their efforts, it could be higher, and maybe that would be the case. But I think gold is going to get wherever it's going to get, despite any efforts by the banking sector to repress it. And obviously, look, the last thing the banks want is the price of gold to be soaring. Uh, They want people buying bonds. They want people buying stocks. uh, The government wants to instill confidence in the dollar. And nothing would destroy confidence faster than $5,000 gold, $10,000 gold. So to really keep this shell game going, right, they got to keep the gold price down. It's kind of like, you know, gold's the, the canary in the monetary coal mine. So if you're trying to kill all the, gold, all the miners with gas, maybe if you can, you know, get rid of those canaries or keep those canaries alive somehow, you know, you, could, you have a better chance of keeping all the miners, uh, you know, where you want them. So I think uh, there is that going on. But, you know, I don't think it should deter people from from buying gold. In fact, it's actually giving people a better opportunity to buy it because if the price of gold was much higher, uh, you'd have to pay a lot more to get it. Well, the clock says we're going to have to leave it there, Peter. My guest today has been the founder and president of Euro-Pacific Capital, as well as Schiff Gold, uh, Mr. Peter Schiff. I'd encourage you to check out his radio program at SchiffRadio.com. And, Peter, always a pleasure to catch up with you and have you on the program. Uh, Appreciate your perspective and insights and love to have you back down the road. 
Sure thing. All right. We will return after these words. Dennis Tubergen. This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. Glad you're listening in. And thanks to Mr. Peter Schiff for joining me on this week's program as well. You know, in the first segment of today's program, I quoted Janet Yellen, who provided this quote as part of her statement, uh, as uh, part of her hearings to be confirmed for the position of Treasury Secretary. Quote, But right now, with interest rates at historic lows, the smartest thing we can do is act big. In the long run, I believe benefits will far outweigh the costs, especially if we care about helping people who have been struggling for a very long time. Well, as I mentioned in the first segment, you don't have to be an economist to know what acting big means. Janet Yellen was a former chair of the Federal Reserve, which means that she knows how to create money. So when she acts big, that is exactly what she's referring to. And she said, in the long run, it's her belief that the benefits will far outweigh the costs. Well, in the first segment, I also talked about the fact that many, if not most, modern-day economists subscribe, rather, to the Keynesian school of economics. Uh, That is an economic theory that was advanced by a gentleman by the name of John Maynard Keynes, And his theory said that when the economy slows down and private sector spending slows down, the government needs to step in and make up for the lack of spending in the private sector. Now, Mr. Keynes, as I pointed out in the first segment, I believe knew that in the long run, contrary to what Ms. Yellen said in her statement, this doesn't work. Keynes in 1923 wrote this, Long run is a misleading guide to current affairs. In the long run, we're all dead. And yet, Ms. Yellen has said that acting big in the long term has more benefits than risks. Well, the Austrian economic school uh, would have a differing view of this strategy. Ludwig von Mises, um, who wrote a book called Socialism, an economic and sociological analysis, wrote this. He said that credit expansion or money creation can bring about a temporary boom, but such a fictitious prosperity must end in a general depression of trade or a slump. If the credit expansion is not stopped in time, the boom turns into the crack-up boom, The flight into real values begins, and the whole monetary system founders. Now, it's important to understand that credit expansion is money creation, and today's money is debt. Now, when debts go unpaid, when a borrower defaults on a loan or defaults on debt, money disappears from the financial system, and that is deflation. And I'll give you a very quick example. Think back, and we're maybe seeing a repeat of it now, but think back about 15 years to the housing boom and and then subsequent housing bust. As real estate prices were running up, 
it wasn't unusual for banks to make 100% loans to buy a property, a home, re- a residence, to a subprime borrower, a, pow- a borrower with a less than stellar credit. Let's just say, for example, that a banker loaned $200,000 to a borrower to buy a home, and now the real estate market crashes, and that $200,000 home is now worth $100,000. Well, the borrower might decide to leave the keys in the door and go rent for a while and let the bank deal with the loss on the real estate. That happened all across the country. So what happened to that $100,000 that the banker loaned the person to buy the house that now they can't get out of the house? There's a $200,000 loan and only a $100,000 house securing it. Well, the banker has $100,000 disappear from his or her financial statements. So that money went to money heaven. It's gone. So in a strange sort of way, the stability of our debt depends on additional credit or money expansion and rising asset prices. This, in a perverse sort of way, ultimately makes things more unstable. See, because all these actions that you're seeing doesn't make the debt go away. When the central planners shut down the economy last year and put moratoriums on evictions and foreclosures, and they said, don't worry about making your student loan payments, guess what? The debt didn't go away. You just didn't have to make payments on the debt. And when you print trillions and trillions of dollars and pump it into the economy as stimulus, the debt doesn't go away. You're simply putting a Band-Aid on the problem. See, the deflation at some point will have to hit because we have to deal with the debt. And I believe that will happen, as economist Ludwig von Mises said, in the form of a crack-up boom. In his work, Mr. von Mises wrote this, the final outcome of the credit expansion is general impoverishment. Now, what is this crack-up boom? Well, a crack-up boom is defined as an economic crisis that involves a recession in the real economy and a collapse in the monetary system due to continual credit expansion or money printing and resulting unsustainable rapid price increases. So this crack-up boom has two characteristics. One, excessive money creation that leads to significant inflation, and two, that inflation turns to hyperinflation, which ultimately ends in the abandonment of the currency or at least irreparable damage being caused to the currency. And at the same time, you have a recession, significant recession. Well, if I go back eight years to 2013, when we conducted the new retirement rules class at a local university for aspiring retirees, I offered my opinion at that time that we'd have to see one of two outcomes. We'd either experience deflation or we'd see inflation followed by deflation, and it entirely depended on what the Federal Reserve did. I suggested at the time that for the latter outcome to occur, that we would have inflation followed by deflation, we would need to see exceptionally large amounts of new money created, and that is exactly what has happened. 
So now I'm of the strong opinion that that is the most likely outcome, that we see inflation followed by deflation. But remember, we will have the deflation because money creation or credit expansion only adds to the problem. It does not make the debt go away. So to conclude, it seems that both von Mises and Keynes will ultimately be correct in their forecasts. The crack-up boom that von Mises described would create a temporary illusion of prosperity before it caused significant damage to the currency. He forecast inflation, followed by hyperinflation, followed by deflation and general impoverishment. Keynes forecast that in the long run, he'd be dead. Seems like they're both going to end up being right. Now, if you haven't yet visited retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, I'd encourage you to do that. We have a lot of free resources available there. And today, as I mentioned in the first segment, is the last day to request our special January report. Will the recently passed COVID relief package negatively affect your retirement? If you would like to get a copy of that report mailed to you again, today's the last day. Just go to the website requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. We'd be very glad to mail you a copy. And when you do, we'll also include a copy of the Revenue Sourcing book, which was a number one bestseller in 2020. So again, requestyourreport.com is the website. That's all the time I have for this week. Glad you tuned in. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.